Good evening. My name's John Bond. I'm a judge of appeal at the Queensland Court of Appeal, and I've been asked to chair this seminar on persuasive document design and formatting. Our presenters tonight, to my left, are three highly credentialed members of the Queensland Commercial Bar. In the centre, Matt Hickey. To my immediate left, Jermaine Harkins Bay, and to our left, Christopher Oil. Let me tell you a bit about them. First, Matt. Matt has the misfortune of not realising the wonder of a career at the bar until later in life. He had a previous career as a recording artist and an operatic tenor. He was awarded the Commonwealth Centenary Medal for Distinguished Service to the Music Industry in 2001 and the OAM for Service to Music and the Law in 2021. Others might have thought seeking a second successful career was a bit greedy, but not Matt. He, was an arts, he had an arts degree from UQ and from QUT and Master of Music and was degree in Laws. He came to the bar in 2010 and has developed an excellent reputation in commercial law, insolvency and organisation, litigation, construction and infrastructure, amongst other fields. And he has a considerable trial and appellate All right. practice. I've just dropped into a... Um, in those fields. Pardon me, I have a little bit of a problem for it. Jamay Hafiz Bay has the misfortune of having spent a year in, uh, with me as my associate, followed by a year as Justice King's associate on the High Court. Apparently, he didn't put him off from the career. He holds a Bachelor of Laws with First Class Honours and University Medal from UQ, a Master of Laws from UQ, and last but not least, a BCL with distinction from Oxford. Jermay has authored it or co authored numerous papers, including his co-authored The Law of Tracing, published by Federation Press in 2021. So it'd have to be Chris Doyle has the misfortune of being the son of two barristers and the younger brother of another. Despite such an inauspicious background, he too was not put off a career in law. He graduated with honours degrees in arts from UQ and laws from UQT. He came to the bar in 2020. He has a broad commercial practice that includes building and construction work, energy and resources, contracts, corporation, defamation and professional negligence, as well as a range of regulatory, public and administrative law work. I'm sure you'll agree that all three of our presenters are well suited to present you on this topic. Uh, can I say, uh, to start with, that I was very pleased to be asked to chair this seminar because the subject is something which I've long regarded to be insufficiently valued. Um, the fact that there's over 850 registered participants to this webinar suggests that there might be others that share that view. Well done. Some of you, though, even though you've registered to uh, participate in watching this presentation, might wonder whether the subject of document design and formatting is important. Surely, one might ask, the proper administration of justice does not value style over substance. Of course, that's true. Style does not trump substance, but nevertheless, style still matters. But why? The answer is because poor style... I'm actually listening to a... Um... And that point can be easily demonstrated. Thank Let's assume for the moment that you prepare a legal document. It doesn't really matter whether it's an opinion, pleading, or a written submission. But let's assume that its substance is terrific. Do you deliver it in the form of a single 10-page long paragraph in single space, eight-point font? Well, of course not. No one would want to read it. That style choice would seriously diminish the substance. Well, what, what would you do to improve it? Well, 
you surely break a single ten-page long paragraph in a smaller paragraph. Wow. Because that would improve reading. And for the same reason, you'd increase the, the size of the font. Reading eight-point font is hard. And can I say, if your demographic is making presentations to judges who tend to be at a certain age demographic, you might find that they find reading eight-point font even harder than you do. For the same reason, you'd probably number each paragraph because that would enable both internal cross-referencing, but will also assist you, or anyone else for that matter, who has to make subsequent references to your document. I'm still old enough to remember when the Queensland reports didn't have numbered paragraphs. And if you're making submissions to a judge, uh, by reference to the reports, you'd say on page 73, at about 0.7 or 0.3 or 0.4 on the page, because there were no numbered paragraphs. That fortunately has changed. And could I indulge in personal advice for the moment? You would certainly not use the digital form of numeration of paragraphs, which can end up with paragraphs numbered 1.1.3.1, because everyone knows that form of numeration is an abomination. <laughs> You'd probably add headings because they will operate as signposts to the reader about the structure of the document and what point or points you're addressing in particular sections of the document. Now, all of those style points would be improvements to the initial style choice, which diminishes the substance of the document. All of those style choices would assist the reader to consume, to understand the terrific substance of your document in the way you intend. The seminar this evening presents important elaborations on that theme. It identifies various style choices which are open to you and explains why in our presenter's view, some choices are better than others. Just to make it interesting and to see if you're paying attention, you'll find that the presenters are going to use the webinar voting feature to have viewers vote on a few different sample documents. I encourage you to do so. I've had the advantage of a preview of the substance of the presentation. I'm confident that you'll find it stimulating and thought-provoking, as I did. Matthew. Thank you, Judge. We're going to cover a, a wide uh, range of topics tonight, but the first thing we wanted to address is what is document design and typography? In 1964, in Jacobellus in Ohio, which must be one of the most quoted US Supreme Court decisions of all time, of the possible obscenity of a film entitled Les Amants, or The Lovers, for those of you who don't speak French, Justice Potter Stewart wrote, I shall not attempt to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description hardcore pornography, but I know it when I see it. May I be so bold as to suggest that you may not yet be familiar with the elements of good document design, but like Justice Potter Stewart, you all know it when you see it. And by the end of this presentation, we hope that you'll have the knowledge to be able to do it too. Document design and typography is how we choose to present text in our documents. Of those we've surveyed, and I should say the sample is restricted to our cynical chambermates who happen to be here in person to heckle us this evening, most think it consists solely of things like font, point size and margins, but there's in fact much more to it. In this seminar, we'll be covering the key text level, paragraph level and document level considerations of which you should be aware. But before that, we need to answer a question that I'm sure many of you will be asking, which is, why does any of this matter? As lawyers, our aim when producing a document is to persuade our reader. But we cannot persuade unless two things happen. First, the reader devotes their time to uh, reading the document. And second, the reader understands what we've actually written. Both of these things are more likely to occur when your document is well-designed. 
A well-designed document draws the reader in and invites them to devote their limited time and attention to the document. A poorly designed document can subconsciously deter them and drive them to find excuses not to read it. A well-designed document uses the non-verbal features of the document to assist the reader to understand the argument. A poorly designed document obscures our argument and impedes the reader's understanding of it. Take a simple example, and the judge has given us one a moment ago, an outline of submissions with no headings, only uninterrupted blocks of text. Not only does that document deter the reader from reading on, it undercuts the reader's ability to understand our argument. On the other hand, a document that judiciously uses headings both invites the reader in and illuminates for the reader the structure of the argument. Will good document design and typography make a bad piece of writing great? Of course not. No outline of submissions, opinion or letter is better than its content. No amount of design and typography can fix bad writing. But that does not mean that design and typography is not an important part of persuasive writing. To the contrary, no amount of research and analysis is useful unless it is communicated effectively. An important part of communicating effectively is how the information is set out on the page. In other words, just as your document is no better than its content, it is also no better than its design and typography. If you ignore design and typography, you limit how good your document can be, and by extension, how persuasive your arguments can be. There are other more pragmatic reasons to know a little bit about document design and typography. In the past, most legal documents were produced on typewriters, and the design choices left to the writer were essentially only the width of the margins and the amount of underlining and capitals. With so little room for movement, not knowing anything about design and typography had limited negative consequences. But these days, word processing software gives everyone access to the sort of design choices that in the past were only available to professional publishing houses. There's therefore far greater scope for error. Similarly, in the days of the typewriter, our readers expected our documents to look like they were produced on a typewriter. But our readers have now become accustomed to reading well-designed documents Nowadays, everything from magazines in waiting rooms to manuals for washing machines have become carefully designed. Our readers expect nothing less from us, if not subconsciously. But don't just take our word for it. There have been um, others who've written extensively on this very point. Uh, we start with the United States Courts of Appeal for the Seventh, Seventh Circuit in the Practitioner's Handbook for Appeals, and we've set out on the slide uh, the substance of the point we wish to make there. More locally, writing in hearsay uh, in 2022, Justice Martin uh, provided this helpful assistance. Uh, it need only to read well, but also to look good. Uh, there's certain, uh, certainly discussion to be had in the Lawyer's Style Guide written by Peter Butt, uh, an excellent book that we commend to you and you'll hear a lot about tonight, which is Typography for Lawyers by an American author, Matthew Butterick who I pause to observe is himself a, a reformed lawyer and a person who now spends his life designing fonts and advocating for good typography. Another document you'll hear about tonight um, with some uh, extensive discussion is Brian Garner's Modern English Usage. And if you're unfamiliar with that text, we certainly each commend it to you. And then finally, um, in the words of uh, Justice Scalia and again, Brian Garner, in Making Your Case, an excellent text, which we commend to you, um, they say this, when business consultants make a presentation to a prospective client, they come forward with a professionally produced bound proposal. They understand that to get business, they must persuade and that good visuals help. The same is true for persuading judges. 
a brief, that's the language of America's uh, usage, of course, that is ugly in typeface with crowded lines, will not invite careful perusal. In the days when briefs had to be printed, counsel and the court could rely on a knowledgeable printer to produce a readily legible product. Now that lawyers can produce their own briefs using desktop publishing software, the file product is often disastrous. Now to Christopher. Thanks, Matt. So there are three introductory points we'd like to make before we get into the meat of this topic. The first is always follow the court rules. So rule 161 of the UCPR sets out the requirements that the document must have for the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal. So the margins must be no smaller than 10 millimeters on the top, bottom and right sides. A margin on the left should be wide enough so that the court seal can be affixed and should be printed with a font type no smaller than 10 point. And this is entirely consistent with the principles we'll discuss today. And the Court of Appeal has its own practice direction, which is on, replicated on the screen, that prescribes a 12 point font in Times New Roman or 11 point in Arial uh, and no smaller than single line spacing. Again, the federal court has its own rules and a snippet is replicated on the screen for you, which notably sets out the width of the margins and the font to be used. And of course, the high court itself is very prescriptive in the way of documents to be set out. So second, second point we'd like to make is that whether we like it or not, not uh, the law is a publishing industry and every law firm and barrister is a publishing house. And our readers, be they clients, judges, or the public, expect our documents to be of the same standard as other professionally produced documents. And for that reason, we should be guided by the standards of professional typography. There are plenty of books on this topic, and as Matt has already indicated, we strongly recommend Matthew Butterick's Typography for Lawyers. We're not taking commission, by the way. No, we just think it's a good book. Excellent book. Um, much of what we say today is sourced from that book, and we cannot recommend it highly enough. And finally, as we cover the rules today, we will identify what is in fact a matter of personal preference and what is a typographical rule or custom. Some things are genuinely a matter of personal choice, others are not. But as I said, we'll identify them for you. And third and finally, one point that will crop up again and again today is don't fear white space. Personally, I struggled with this when I began, but I could never go back now. We are trained from law school to fit as much as possible onto each page and to leave as little space as possible. But we all know how unappealing and inviting, uninviting a densely packed page of text is. Ample white space, on the other hand, makes the page less cluttered, which in turn makes it more approachable White space makes the page more inviting and increases the likelihood of your reader reading on. We will cover each of these in detail, but ways to increase the white space in your page is to increase the margins and the uh, appropriate use of headings and lists. So font is probably the first choice, the first design choice that almost all lawyers consciously make. And while it's probably not the most important, it is still an important choice. It is also one of the considerations where you're most likely to be constrained by either the court's rules or your, own, or your firm's own style guide. But subject to that, there are a few key rules that we say uh, must be followed. 
And the first is to use a serif font. So serifs, as you should be able to see on the screen, are those small horizontal, horizontal or vertical strokes at the end of lines that make up letters and, letters and numbers. Uh, serif fonts, such as Times New Roman, have them, and serif, sans serif fonts, such as Arial, do not. Our goal is to make the document as readable as possible. And studies suggest that long passages in serif font are easier to read and comprehend than long passages in sans serif font. Sans serif fonts can work well in headings, uh, but they are difficult to read in body text. And you will find that almost all professionally published materials take this approach. Secondly, you should use a proportional font rather than a monospace font. In monospace fonts like Courier, every character is the same width. And as has already indicated, these were invented to suit mechanical requirements of typewriters. Whereas proportional fonts like Times New Roman, the characters vary in width. And proportional fonts, the studies suggest, are easier to read and also take up less space on the page. And a good example of that is on the screen for you. So in both of these examples, it's the same text, it's the same line spacing, and it's the same point size. But obviously the proportional font on the right takes up far less space. And we would say it's much easier and more appealing to read. The third rule is to use a professional font rather than a system font, where possible. Professional fonts can be purchased online and there is a wide variety. We're all fans of Butterick's own, one of his fonts called Equity. And many of you will be familiar with that font as it's the font that Justice Bond used in the trial period. These slides, for example, are set in Equity and you can purchase it online. Again, we're not receiving any commission for this. Fourth and finally, if you must use a system font, choose wisely. Matthew Butterick has compiled a series of tables for you to view. Uh, list A, for example, has Century Schoolbook, Garand, and Palatino. Times New Roman is in list C at the very bottom. And for those of you wondering where Ariel is, it's on the F list, being fatal to your credibility, along with <laughs> the Papyrus script. <laughs> So, for those of you on Zoom, you should have a window appearing on your screen very shortly. It should be relatively self-explanatory, but we're asking you to vote between A, B, and C, which you think which you think is the most appealing font. And we'll give you 15, 20 seconds to do that. The results are streaming in. <laughs> Can I just say this is very cool? <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen this before. We could do that in the court of appeal. Or maybe we could transmit what we're thinking of. What <laughs> it's only my preliminary view. <laughs> I, I can't see the results. Overwhelmingly the same, which is good. <laughs> Pass the first test. Yes. <laughs> um, the next consideration is the size of your font. This is pretty simple. Check the court rules. Some specify that it must be in 12 point font, others don't. 
You should aim for between 10 and 12. As a personal preference, we recommend 11. I would counsel you not to go for 10. It's too small. Um, it's okay for, I, I can share things on the screen so I can make them bigger if I want. All the people reading hard copy, especially on the book appeal, um, but part of being against time, against our practice direction, I would counsel you not to do it for judges. I think you're 12 point, 11 or 12 is, is okay. There you have it. I'll pass it off to Jarmé now. Thanks very much, Chris. Uh, so capitalisation is our next topic, and there are two types of capital, capitals. There's all caps and there's small caps. So we'll start with all caps. The main rule is use them sparingly. Uh, caps text is more difficult to read. Studies suggest that text in all caps is about 20% slower uh, to read even for quite simple sentences. Really, you should only be using all caps in headings as long as they're shorter than one line or headers, footers, or captions. And one pernicious habit that we sometimes see is lawyers setting clauses and contracts in all caps uh, to indicate their importance and to make sure they aren't missed. But as you all have instinctively experienced, it often makes them harder to read and makes the reader more likely to skip them. Small caps, which is the other type of capitalization, uh, are short capital letters designed to blend with lowercase text. They're slightly taller than lowercase letters, but slightly shorter than regular lowercase letters. And so, for example, you can see on the slide the word capitalization up the top is set in small caps. And they're aware of emphasizing text doesn't involve bolding or italics or underlining. They can also be useful for level one headings and as a substitute for all caps. They're also much more pleasing on the eye, uh, but black all caps should be used sparingly. But there is one thing I must counsel you against. If, sorry, Microsoft Word has a feature where it can generate its own small caps using the font settings menu, which we picked on the slide. And that will produce what we've called fake small caps down the bottom, as compared to real small caps, which we've said just above that. The fake small caps are produced simply by scaling down the existing capital letters. And so you end up with letters that are too tall, they have vertical strokes that aren't dark enough, and they have inadequate spacing. True small caps can only be generated by actually buying the small caps version of your font. So for example, if you go out and buy equity font, which Chris recommended earlier, you'll be given two files, the equity font and equity caps, and use equity caps when you want to set something in small caps. Our next topic is emphasizing, and there's a couple of ways of doing this. One of which is underlining. And underlining is a lingering habit from the days of the typewriter when the only way to emphasize text was to roll back the carriage and add underscores of the text. The rule today is simple, don't underline, ever. It looks ugly, it makes text harder to read, and it takes up the white space between the lines. And that's why you almost never see underlining any professionally published document, never in newspapers, books, or magazines. The more useful way to emphasize text is bold and italics. And there are a few rules here. One, never use both, only at bold or italic size. Two, choose one and stick to it. Be consistent, don't switch between them unless you've got a good reason. Three, use them sparingly. Partly this is because if you emphasize everything, nothing is emphasized, but also it's because bold and italics is more difficult to read than regular text. And finally, if you are using a sans serif font, you should prefer italics, but if you use, I'm sorry, you should prefer bold, which stands out more. But if you're using serif font, as we suggest, either or. That I think takes us to our second vote. Now this one we'll make a vote before we actually discuss the content, which may be a risky move. It's about line lengths and page margins. So if you could indicate 
which of those two documents you prefer, and I'll give you 15 seconds from when the voting starts. We'll leave it till I get the right result, John. It's close there for a while. That's not as big as the other one. No. Right, so I have 168 people who've got about 45% for option A and 55% for option B. So for those who picked option B, the majority, well done. For those who picked option A, this is why we think option B is the more preferable uh, of the two. Line length, as you probably know, is the distance between the left side and the right side of a block of text. It's matching characters, and ideally you should be aiming for 45 to 90 characters, including spacing, with an average of about 65. And you can check that by highlighting a single line and bringing up the word count, which has a field for characters with spaces. That is shorter than most of the legal documents you will see day to day, but it's the better option. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One, reading shorter lines is far more comfortable. Your eye doesn't have to travel quite as far from the end of one line to the beginning of the next, and you minimize the chances of the reader finishing one line, moving back to the start of the page, I'm sorry, the left side of the page, and mistakenly reading that same line again. And I can demonstrate this by asking you to think about the various professionally published materials that read every day. Maximize readability. Novels and other books have short line lengths to maximize readability. And a little closer to home, this is the reason why most law reports have short line lengths. This is true of the Commonwealth law reports and the Queensland law reports, which should be on the slide in a moment as well as the federal court reports and the appeal cases, just to name a few. And we, in fact, it's the sort of thing I do in my spare time, I took a page from Walton Stores and calculated the average line length, and it was 65 characters, which is bang on. So how do you go about changing your line length? There are really two ways. There's alternating your point size, as Chris discussed, but really that doesn't uh, have a lot of effect on your line length. The far better way is to alter your page margins. And Microsoft Word defaults to one inch, which produces an appropriate line length if you're using monospaced fonts, as on a typewriter. It doesn't work for proportional fonts, which you will recall have narrower letters. And so if you're using, uh, you, should be aim, you should aim, we think, for about 1.5 inches or more, which is 3.87 meters or higher. But you should always be guided, guided by the average line length on your page by using the word count feature. And the usual objection to documents like this uh, is that they look strange and that there's too much white space much of the page is empty. As to the first objection, documents with larger than normal margins look less unusual than you think, and it is very easy to get used to them. And in any event, the corresponding increase in readability more than makes up for it. And as to the objection about much of the page looking empty, as Chris told you earlier, white space is not something to be afraid of. If you're still skeptical, can I ask you to think about this? Can you think of any professionally published document that uses single lines on A4 paper with one inch margins. I suspect we won't be able to, which is because publishers will either use a smaller paper size, as in novels or law reports, or they will use an A4 page, but put the text in columns to reduce the line length, as in magazines. That takes us on to our next topic, which is line spacing. Again, I think we're going to start with a vote. So if you're going to indicate which of the three documents on the screen you prefer, we're going to give you 15 seconds. 
Right, so we've got 5% in favour of A. Good, that's the single line spacing, you should avoid that. Uh, as to B and C, we've got 44% for B and 52% for C. Now the majority is right there, C is the better one. B is in fact double spaced. Uh, if you can go to the next slide, I'll explain Let's why. Let's see, C line uh, uh, C, I think, is that line. Oh, C line. I'm a single line space person. <laughs> you, you, you were on the 5% Yep. <laughs> so, uh, my, my advice is to avoid single line spacing. Uh, it makes the, tense, the text dense and difficult to read. Uh, I also think you ought to avoid double line spacing, which obscures the structure of your paragraphing, impedes readability and makes it easier to accidentally skip lines, although it's good for drafting and proofreading. According to Butterick, you should aim for about 120 or 145% of your font size, which if you're using 11 points, uh, comes out to about 13.2 to 15.95 points. And the best way to set that is by using the exactly option in Microsoft Word's font uh, paragraphing settings. And the reason for that is that Microsoft Word has a curiosity where in fact, what it calls double spacing is not double spacing, it's about 233%, and so on with single and time and a half. So it'd be best to specify exactly. And I will hand over to you now. Thank you. So I want to talk now about justification, uh, and I don't mean the justification for delivering this paper. Uh, I want to talk about the way in which we set out the text by reference to the margins themselves. The first point we'd make is that uh, text should almost never be centered. Uh, it's useful for centering, that is, is useful for headings. Uh, it's useful for um, particular stylistic cues, but block text should never be centered. It looks unprofessional and it's very difficult to read because of the uneven edges. Um, the next uh, thing we talk about is the, uh, the eternal debate between left aligning and justified alignment. Um, there's really no hard and fast rule about this. We can see it's a matter of personal preference, although our view is that the right view is that it should be justified rather than left aligned. The reason for that is that uh, the left alignment uh, creates a ragged right-hand edge. It's suggested that you know, by some that it, it's easier to read. Uh, we don't think that there's any um, uh, really dependable research on that particular point. Um, one of the criticisms which is made against justified line spacing is that the way justification works is in order for the left-hand margin and the right-hand margin to be uh, lined up with one another. The word processing program automatically creates white space between the, uh, the words. Uh, and so what can happen if you don't uh, enable the auto hyphenation feature, which we've talked about, um, is that you get these um, sort of arbitrary white spaces between uh, words, which don't really make a great deal of sense. As we say um, in the slide, I think, yes, uh, the way that you can come around that problem is by looking into the, uh, the settings within Word, uh, go to layout, hyphenation and automatic. And what it does then is automatically splits words where it's necessary to split them uh, across lines. So that's one thing where we'll allow you a bit of um, personal discretion, although uh, we think you should follow us and do justification. The next one, we are um, much more concrete in our views about, and this is, we recognize a topic of uh, some dispute between people. This is the question of whether one should insert one space or two at the end of a <coughs> sentence. Uh, there were good technical reasons in times gone by as to why two spaces were necessary after a full stop. Those technical reasons no longer obtain. Um, if you are using two spaces after a full stop at the end of a sentence, you are wrong. Uh, it's as simple as that. Um, there are several reasons why one space is to be preferred, but ultimately it's just a well-settled rule now among professional typographers. 
the only exception is if you are foolhardy enough to use a typewriter style font like Courier, and we don't recommend you do that in any professional context. Um, there's a very entertaining section if you're entertained by that kind of thing in this book that we keep commending to you by Matthew Puderick. Uh, he goes through some common objections to the one space rule and collects some type of typographical authorities to show that, uh, as we suggest, there is a rule about this. But again, the easiest way to verify it is to look at any professionally published book, uh, any magazine, any newspaper, you will always, we suggest, find one space after a full stop, not two. Thanks very much, Matt. That takes us on to headings and subheadings. And headings are perhaps one of the most uh, important parts of document design. It's difficult, to under, it's difficult to overstate the positive effect that the judicious use of headings can have on your document. They are signposts to the reader, they make the document easier to follow, and they also have the incidental benefit of helping the writer organize his or her thoughts logically. There are four heading-related issues we need to talk to you about. The first is that headings should stand out from the body text. Use bold for this, italics, all caps or small caps, but as I said earlier, never underline. Aside from titles and subtitles, headings should be left aligned, not centered. And importantly, if your body text has paragraph numbers, the heading should align with the paragraph numbers, as on the example in the right hand, uh, on the right hand side of the slide, it should not align with the body text, as on the incorrect example on the left hand side of the slide. The second rule is uh, the headings should stand out from each other and the hierarchy should be clear. We've put uh, headings only make it easier to follow a document if different levels of headings are clearly distinguishable and the hierarchy is obvious. We've put uh, our recommended combinations on the slide. And if you've gone out and bought a professional font, which gives you the option of real small cups, we suggest the one on the right. There are other possibilities. You might vary the point size of the headings but in our view, that's not as, as distinct as using any of the other features and is unusual. But if you do that, be careful. There's nothing quite a better alternative uh, is to the decimal numbering is to use a combination of numbers and letters uh, and long-standing custom has a particular order, which you'll find reflected in, for example, Queensland legislation. Part one, two, three, section A, B, C, et cetera, et cetera. The third rule is that you really should have no more than three levels of headings. If you go beyond three levels, your document becomes difficult to follow, your subject matter becomes fractured, and you start to look at the benefits of having headings in the first place. And finally, you ought to avoid what we call floating headings. And those are headings that have an equal amount of space before and after them. Ideally, you should have space uh, more space before the heading than after, so that the heading is tied to the text that it introduces. And finally, try not to orphan headings by putting them at the bottom of the page with the text they introduce starting on the next page. Microsoft Word has a feature called Keep with Next, which will keep the heading with the body text it introduces. And I think that's over to you, Chris. It is. All right, thanks, Jarman. So for lists, there are really only two things to be aware of, and they follow on mostly from what Jarman discussed with headings. Um, first, I should say that when we're discussing lists, we mean really where the subparagraphs follow one from one another. And secondly, there is no excuse to ever use a bullet list. Always use a numbered list. I appreciate that we're using bullet points on the slide. We'll <laughs> overlook that. Um, and the reason for this is self-explanatory is just one identified earlier. It's much easier to identify the thing you're talking about by reference to a number than saying, you know, halfway down the page, you're not to begin with what 
In our view, there is only one acceptable way to set out your subparagraphs, and that is the suggested example on the right. And this really derives from the convenience of referring to those subparagraphs later. And like headings, you should aim for no more than four levels or three subparagraphs. If, you, if you're exceeding that, then your document, but more importantly, your point becomes too hard to follow. For footnote formatting, there are only two things to be aware of. First, footnote text, not footnote number, must align with the indent of the body text, not paragraph number. And secondly, the footnote text should be in a, a size smaller than the body text. So where you're using 11 point font for your body text, we recommend 10 point font. And there is an example on the screen for you of what we consider to be proper formatting. On the right, I should clarify. <laughs> These are more examples of poor footnote formatting. I won't identify where they're from. Uh, the next point is about formatting block quotations. Um, there's a simple recipe for this. It, there are two rules on the screen, but there really are three. You indent the block, you reduce the point size, and you reduce the line spacing. And this approach has several advantages. It avoids the need for entire blocks of text to be in italics or all caps, which makes it very difficult to read. It avoids the need for quotation marks at the beginning and the end of the quotation, and it marks out as clear what is the block quotation and what is not. And that is an example, again, on the right, of the way we say you should format your quotations. And we've got an example for you to vote on as well, please. Hopefully a window will pop up on your screen very shortly. One of the trees Yes, 93% for B, but as a heckle from the crowd identified, there is in fact a heading that says R for that, so. <laughs> <laughs> that one's on us. Yeah. Now pass over to Hickey to sum up. Oh, thank you. Could we deal then, we've covered quite a lot of ground in the uh, in the last 50 minutes or so. Could, could we then summarise what we've uh, explained to you? Court rules, always follow them. Font, use a serif font. Use a professional font we recommend, or at least a suitable system font. Avoid area. Point size, use 10, although Susanna thinks we should use 11 at the very least, or to 12. That's what we recommend is 11. Capitalization, use all caps sparingly, if at all. Use small caps as an alternative to bold or italics. Never use fake small caps. Never underline for emphasis. Use bold and italics sparingly and never together. Line length, aim for a line length of 45 to 90 characters, including spaces, with an average of around 65 characters. Line spacing, aim for spacing at 120 to 145% point size. Justification, your text should rarely be centred. Use left, left line or justified. We think justified is best. 
and always use automatic hyphenation if justifying. Spaces, use one space after a sentence. Headings should stand out from the body text and from each other. Use no more than three levels and avoid floating headings. Lists, use numbered lists, not bullet points. Use no more than four paragraph levels. Footnotes, the text should align with the body text. Use a font size smaller than the body text. And block quotations, indent the quote, reduce the point size and optionally reduce the line spacing. And here's one last vote for you. Having put all of that together, we're sure you'll agree with us um, as to the right answer here, but we do invite you one last time to vote to ensure that we've uh, done what we set out to do here today. Yeah, I'd hazard to guess that the dissent we've got um, comes from those that are with us within the room here. <laughs> What's the result, Joanne? Good. So the results are, after all of that, 94% uh, of people made the right choice, B, and 6% of people, that is 11 out of 179, which almost precisely accords with the number of people here in the room of us, have chosen uh, number A. Can we move on to a couple of practical tips? Uh, the first of which is we, look, we are fully aware that most people don't find this subject matter quite as interesting as we do and have far better things to do with their time, as we're reminded constantly. Uh, we're not asking you to spend on due amounts of time on this. Most of what we have covered, in fact, I think almost all of what we've covered in this presentation can be preset into your Word documents by creating templates using Microsoft Word's style features, which we have on the slides. So spend an hour uh, setting up your templates. All your documents will be consistent, appropriately formatted, and you'll reap the rewards for many years to come. Secondly, if you do go out and buy a professional font, such as Equity, which we recommended earlier, you really ought to go into the settings in Microsoft Word uh, in the place indicated on the slide and enable font embedding. And what this allows you to do is uh, when your document gets sent to your less enlightened colleagues who haven't gone out and purchased the font, they can edit it, they can render the document, they can save it as a PDF and the font will work for them. They won't be able to use the font on their own documents, but it solves the problem which you might otherwise have of sending your document beautifully formatted with a great font to people who can't actually view it. And finally, uh, we mentioned some resources. We've set out a list on the page. There are some specialist text for lawyers there and some general typographical text. Can I recommend in particular, uh, if you're not going to go out and buy Matthew Butterick's book, his website, Practical Typography, uh, contains pretty much the entirety of his book, uh, exquisitely formatted, an easy to access resource with uh, checklists, guidance, whatever you might be after uh, about typography. And that I think takes us to Questions. Right. Well, while John is looking back up, I might just um, make a couple of comments. I confess I'm a double space after a single after full stop kind of guy. Wrong judge, sorry. I know, I know. I can accept intellectually that I should change, but I learned how to type that way and I'm not gonna try to relearn and it's too hard to edit it. I confess I might have been the earliest adopter of um, the fonts that our presenters recommend. I'd like to say that there's a conscious decision based upon an appreciation of the intricacies of typography, and I did buy the book. But 
when I read the author said that he designed something which is really good for lawyers, I got interested. And when I read it, called it equity, I was sold. So it was as simple as that. Um, I used it on the bench up until my appointment to the Court of Appeal, where I now felt constrained to, I confess, adopt the generic use of Times New Roman. Um, I agree with almost everything that's been said here. I've been ejected a couple of times. I, I personally hate line and a half and two lines spaces. It's too, it takes me too long to read. Um, that's probably just me. Everyone else loves it. Um, and I agree with everything else that's been advanced. What have we got in terms of question? I'm going to let you operate the... Sure, sure. Shall I read that, Josh? Which one have we got? There's a few there. Okay, well, it's... Should one capitalise the first letter of terms such as plaintiff, defendant, claim, and statement of claim, etc.? Never. I hate caps. What's your answer? I, look, I agree with that. I don't think it's a proper noun in that context. I don't think there's any justification for it. There are far too many use of caps. Far too many. Um, how much of a relevant case authority should written submissions contain? Are extracts from the judgment good or bad? How long is too long for a judgment extract? Well, you can give counsels, um, somebody give counsel's perspective, I'll give a judicial perspective. Uh, look, I think. Uh, <coughs> No more than is absolutely necessary to illustrate the point is the best answer I can give. Uh, if the, if the, the judge is interested in going and reading the case, identifying where the, the uh, passage comes from, providing a pinpoint citation is more than enough. Uh, really, I would only include a particular um, section from a, from a judgment in order to save the judge the trouble of going somewhere else um, to, to illustrate. But I would err on the side of less, not more. Can, can I have one thing left? Sorry, Josh. Uh, if you are going to introduce a block quote in your submission, it's important not just to drop the block quote out of nowhere. You know, in such and such case, Justice McHugh said, you have to preface the quote by saying, and Justice McHugh explained why X, Y, Z, put the quote in context, sandwich it, and recognize that uh, a lot of the time, the first thing that people will skip if they're skim reading a document is the block quote. So it's important to foreshadow what it is the block quote says and why you've included it. And don't be afraid to have emphasis added. The truth is the immediate consumption of any legal document, no one reads footnotes. I don't people only read the body. If it's important, have the quote, a big slab, people go, oh, it's a big slab, I'm not going to read it. So introduce it in the way JMA has suggested and then um, bold print the good bit. Uh, should copies of case <laughs> oh, okay. authorities hand to the judge have the relevant passages relied upon, highlighted and or tab? You know, it used to be that everyone said, oh, I apologise, Your Honour, I've handed up a copy that's highlighted. I never understood. Is the bit you want me to read highlighted? Good, I'll read it. If you've got a secret message written in small print next to it, I'll probably say something, but otherwise, um, I personally don't have a problem with it. What's the best way to set out a chronology in written submissions? Should it be an X as a separate document or contained within the body? Chris, you can have you say something. Uh, unless the chronology is strictly relevant, I wouldn't include it at all. But depends how long it is, really. If everything is relevant to the case you're arguing, then I, you know, depending on the size, depends where I put it. it it's, it's detail. So the problem is how much detail you put in your submissions. Um, one thing I learned as a judge, which I didn't know as counsel, even though I was reasonably experienced, is it's surprising how hard it is as a judge to get on top of a factual context that's new to you. So if you're not previously read it and you've just been given a submission, it's really hard to get it in your head. You 
the first presenter always has been a consumer of topic for a judge. It's, it's, a, it's much harder than I thought it was. Um, and I find chronologies can be quite helpful, and sometimes I use them and don't use them at all. So it's kind of a judge that is shit. Italics in block text. Should italics be used in block text? I, I, I've got to say, in my judgments, if I'm quoting things, and can I say, I, I used to always quote in 10 point, apology rule, but the style guide for the Court of Appeal doesn't admit of that, so I have acquiesced. So we use 12 point with quotes. I used to hate quotes too, you didn't need quotes because you're in 10 point. But anyway, so that's what I do. I emphasize uh, in by adding whole print rather than italics. I think it jumps out more, but you might have a different view. I think it's, it's also easier to read large stretches of bold. Not that you should have large stretches, but a sentence in bold is easier to read than a sentence italicized. I apprehend the question is whether the entirety of a block text should be italicized. I think the answer to that is no. Italics is difficult to read. Italics should be used for emphasis or case names where it's appropriate. Uh, vast swathes of text should never be in italics, in my view. Yeah, I, I, I do think I agree completely with that. Um, I don't think there's much you should have in the I've seen, excuse me, documents that have uh, things in quotes. The whole thing is in italics. It's just it's really hard to read. So I wouldn't be doing that. Um, well, actually, that's one of the one of the, um, the questions, which is a very good question, is how often are these rules compromised to a hard patient? And I used to do it all the time. And I, I, sometimes I think you have to. We say 10 pages in the court of appeal. And we're pretty serious about 10 pages. If you come along and just give us 30 pages, you might find that it's actually not received by the registrar. Um, so we're serious about it, and that's a problem. If you start using line and a half, you'll find there's a significant reduction in your ability to fit things in the 10 pages. That said, using 10-point font and margins of 5 millimetres either side will, um, will not win you any friends. So uh, I think it's a I think it's, I think I think it's there is a degree of compromise you have. I would compromise and I do and I did compromise on the your um, line and a half space all the time. You know, in a in a heartbeat. I, I tend to go for one point <laughs> one five when it comes to hard page limits, if I'm honest. Uh, and it, this question, which is a good question too, what do I think about the fine terms, or what does the, the team think about the fine terms? The question says, I've always thought capitalised to fine terms a bit clumsy, but the, but the practice seems ubiquitous. No. The, I used to, in, in everything I did at the bar, put bracket quote to fine term, close quotes in your bracket. We now don't tend to do that. Now we just tend to do bracket bold print to fine terms. Never capitalise it, just define the term in bold print. Um, and that's how that's how I would do it as one, that's how I do it in my judgments. In terms of oh, there's far too many um, defined terms used in things, judges get lost in it. Acronyms, acronyms are problematic too unless it's a well-known one, BHP, no problem. Um, but if you start using different acronyms, we start getting lost. We I shouldn't speak for the whole judiciary. I start getting lost. So you want to be careful about that. What's the 
recommendation of the presenters about uh, how one does define it. In my practice, the same as the judges, bold uh, in brackets. I will add one way you could do it is to put the defined term in small caps, which is quite common in America. I don't think we're quite here, quite there yet in our profession. Apparently not. Well, I think it's awful, but that's just fair enough. What do you think? Chris? I, I tend to follow as well, but I must say I use quotation marks around my bold text. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, I think that's right. One, <laughs> one, one, one less thing to have to type is uh, is useful, I think. I've seen books so. No, I disagree. Right. Well, we've got some people saying that, well, not quite on the quotes, but there's some, some people suggesting in the chat that capitalization indicates a defined term is best. Oh, I just think it's the, Is that sense. capitalization of the whole word or just the first letter? I think if there's any doubt about whether you're adopting a defined term or not, then maybe there's a judgment to be made about using a capitalized letter. I confess. I do tend to adopt that approach sometimes. Yeah, in a, in a defined, um, yes, sometimes I, I try to reduce the amount of uh, caps other than the proper nouns and the start of sentences best I can. And uh, most defined terms I will do that. Sometimes I, I won't. So I think I just write in judgment today and it's, you, know, you get on appeals, you've got the, the plaintiff is the applicant. So how do you refer to it? I usually do something like, it's convenient to refer to the applicant in this court, the Court of Appeal, as the plaintiff, because there's references in judgments and other discussions to it using the name from the court below. So I usually do that and I wouldn't capitalise it. But there'll be other occasions where you would capitalise the, the initial letter. I think as well that whatever you do, you should be consistent throughout the entire document. Oh, I completely agree with that, I, I, especially with headings. Like yeah. your, your recommendation of picking three headings, completely agree with differentiating with the headings, completely agree with so you always know when you look at it, that's a subheading or that's a sub subheading. Um, and if, as I have seen on a number of occasions, those rules are breached, you, it, it does your heading because you're thinking, okay, I've got this, this is the conception done by a heading, and then you get something else coming in which you would have thought must be a different topic but it's not, it's got a different form of heading. So what does all that mean? And as soon as you've got the consumer of your document pausing to ask a question out of the immediate comprehension of the message you're trying, then you've made a mistake. So I think your point's a good one, Judge, and it's something that we haven't, um, I think, really touched upon is that a lot of this, you know, why does this matter? It matters because so often we're writing against deadlines and we're, I'm thinking about all sorts of things other than the ultimate reader of whatever it is we're producing. And so those sorts of considerations are about, if I didn't know anything about this document, I've never seen it before, what can I do to make it as easy as possible to digest for a person who's coming to it fresh? And all of these things we've talked about and what um, the judge just has, has just been mentioning is all directed to that. Put yourself in the shoes of the person who will read this document and imagine what may, might make their lives easier. I tell you what I started to <clears throat> doing judgments. We all know that a picture tell is better than a thousand words. So I recently worked out how to do screen captures and and little grab a picture. And so um, I did a judgment that has been published, which was about oh, a lease of supremacists so I put a picture in the actual judgment. And I'm doing another judgment at the where I'm putting some maps. In, in the judgment, because if I tried to make it in words, it would take far too long. 
um, recommendations about colour and overuse of defined terms. Colour, oh, I don't have a problem with colour, but it's, it's hard to get in, it's hard to be assured that the reproduction will actually keep the colour. And question about overuse of defined terms, well, yes. I mean, sometimes it's, the, the, the answer is, if you're referring to ABC proprietary, do you need to define it as ABC? Absolutely not. Just call it ABC. Drop the repeating while you need. It's perfectly obvious. Your reader's not an idiot. All right. Well, um, um, Jamai tells me it's about time. I hope you enjoyed that as much as, as I did. I, I think it's terrific that we've got people that have made an attempt to understand these rules in a professional way and to convey you to, to the audience some rules that are easy to follow. I, I think it's a great idea. Some of these decisions are aesthetic. You're entitled to have a different view. But some of them are just plain good sense. You've got to follow them. So um, I, I hope you uh, are as grateful as I am to our presenters. <laughs>